what we need. And you would forgive us our sins and you would remind us of, of all that you've done for us. And we pray these things in Jesus, your good name. Amen. Well, as we jump in this morning, let me ask you, let me ask us uh, a couple of, uh, honestly, they're, they're loaded questions. First, who likes living under authority? Now, I think sometimes we maybe take this for granted, but uh, whether we like it or not, we all do live underneath someone else's authority. We have laws that govern our land and, and attempt to instruct us morally. We have police that enforce those laws. We have tax laws that affect our paychecks. If you go to school, if you work for someone else, if you live with your parents, you are living under someone else's authority. Someone else is dictating to you how you should live. Now, this isn't inherently, in and of itself, a bad thing. Let me suggest parents should instruct kids on how they should live. Employers probably should have control of their companies. Teachers should have authority in their classrooms. Why? Because uh, all of us who are in authority, all of those who are in authority, should have the best interests of those in their charge at heart. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's always the case, of course, we all know that. But authority in and of itself isn't a bad thing. The second question, since we've established that you are actually living under authority, whose authority are you submitting to? And this is not just, uh, well, obviously, I have to follow these rules and these laws, but when you get up in the morning, who's, who's leading, whose authority are you submitting to? See, if we look at, at human history, we see in, in so many ways that, that the history of humanity is one big story of how we have rebelled against authority. If we start reading the Bible right from the beginning, it takes till the end of chapter 1, and we see that God created humankind in his image, and, and humanity was created to have dominion and authority over the earth, to, to subdue it, to, to work the land, and yet was also instructed to be in a relationship with God that includes submitting to his authority, which makes sense because God created everything, knows what's best for everything, and knows what's best for us and how to live. Yet it's barely over a chapter later, in chapter 3, when we see Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebel against God, believing that God was holding out on them and deciding that they wanted more for themselves. As we keep reading through the Old Testament, through the story of, of human history, we see the same thing happening again and again, whether it's the Israelites complaining in the desert, whether it's the oft-repeated phrase in the book of Judges that in those days there was no king and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in so many ways that phrase could be written today and no one would bat an eye, would they? It seems like the, the natural bent of our heart is anti-authority. It puts us at the center of our universe and expects everything else to revolve around us. Let me suggest that is our, our sinful, our, our fallen nature coming out. This isn't something new, and this isn't something that has gone away. We see this even growing seemingly exponentially in our Western culture today with, with the idea of expressive individualism, which says that, that every one of us just needs to look deep inside of us, be true to ourselves, and whatever you find inside, express that in whatever way you feel like it, and it's good. See, we are, by our very nature, rebels. 
although I would suggest that probably most of us wouldn't describe ourselves that way. Well, as we start to come to the text, let me suggest that in order for that rebellious spirit to, to be overcome, it actually takes the supernatural work of God in our lives to get our hearts to turn away from going our own way and turn back to Jesus and submit to Jesus as our leader and forgiver, as our Lord and Savior and master of our lives. We're about to start the second kind of major section in John's gospel this week. So if you have a Bible in front of you, I'd invite you to open to John chapter 5. And the deeper we get into this book, the more we're going to be confronted with our own, uh, our own struggle with authority. And especially our, our struggle with Jesus' authority over our lives. We're going to see this time and time again. In these, in these first few chapters of, or first few verses of chapter 5, we're about to see Jesus heal a man who's been lame, as the, the text says, he's been an invalid for 38 years, and then he's going to get persecuted for it, Jesus will. And so here's the big idea for this morning, for the weeks to come as well, that Jesus' persecution, especially in these verses that are, that are posted below me there, uh, Jesus' persecution gives him the perfect opportunity to reveal his authority and his authority over all mankind, and confront the religious leaders with their rebellion against God. Let me say that one more time. Jesus' persecution, which is going to start bubbling to the surface here in these verses, gives him the perfect authority, the perfect opportunity, excuse me, to reveal his authority over mankind and confront the religious leaders with their rebellion against God. Let's jump in. Again, at this point in John's gospel, there's been a pretty significant shift that's taken place. So as we walk through the chapters, chapter 1 includes the prologue and was kind of an introduction to the whole book. Chapters 2 through 4, which we wrapped up last week, was what we call the Cana cycle. It, it showed how the people were starting to grow interested in Jesus. They were, they were curious, especially the, the Jews. They were showing some, some curiosity in the signs and wonders that he had done. And then it had the story of the Samaritan outsiders, outsiders kind of grasping and recognizing who Jesus was without even seeing those signs or miracles. But here now in chapter 5, we start to see a shift from, from curiosity to opposition, from interest actually to persecution. And this shift comes and, and builds as Jesus further demonstrates and establishes his authority. And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus... Uh, his authority revealed as he shows himself to be Lord over sickness and Lord over the Sabbath. Let me start reading. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have known to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. 
Now, there's a handful of things going on here, uh, all of which point us directly at Jesus' authority and his deity, the, the fact that Jesus is God. And so let me sort of uh, break out four things about this healing, and I'm, I'm borrowing some language from uh, Matt Carter here as well. The first thing we want to see is this was not a fake healing. John sets the scene for us in these verses with Jesus coming to Jerusalem for a feast, and yet Jesus goes into this one specific area of the city near the Sheep Gate, a, a place that was filled with, as, as John writes, a multitude of invalids, those who were blind and lame and paralyzed. Now, in those days, in the first century, in, in that culture, that culture was strongly rooted in things like honor and shame, and, and especially religiously clean and unclean. So nobody randomly, accidentally found themselves milling about this pool with all these people here. Jesus is being very deliberate. John then describes this interaction with this man who has suffered with something uh, we sort of assume and guess some sort of paralysis for 38 years. That's a long time. Those who are 38, they're pretty old. Now, in a center like Jerusalem, in, in a major center like Jerusalem, which would have been, a, a, you know, it was a religious hub, there would have been a lot of population density there as well. Even in a major center, the people would have known about this guy, would have, have probably recognized this man and his condition because it had been so long. So this man isn't faking an injury. His life has, has no doubt been filled with suffering. He describes that, that, he's, he, that no one will help him get into the pool, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that means in a minute, which tells us he's, he's very likely not just alone, or not just an outcast of society, but also alone. There's nobody with him there. Now, at this time, Jesus is only in his, his early 30s, so it's not like he and this man could have conspired together to make this up, to show this sign and, 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 and prove anything. Because the man was paralyzed six years before Jesus was born. Now just a, a quick note on this text. In your Bible, if you look closely, you may notice that there is no verse 4. In several of the more modern translations, they omit vo verse 4 or they put it in a footnote. Uh, the ESV, which is what we're reading from here, for instance, says this in a footnote. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, and here's the, in, the inserted section. Uh, he was waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. I don't know about your Bible, but mine has that in a footnote, removed from the text. Now, most scholars today believe that that, that section, that verse, it's kind of the end of verse 3 and verse 4, was actually added into the margins of the manuscripts by a scribe who was later copying what John had originally wrote. It would have been added for something as an editorial note, uh, again, ideally on the sides, for those of us who, who weren't familiar with this pool or the superstitions around it. It helps us understand why he was there, what he's talking about trying to get into the pool. It gives us clarity to what the man tells Jesus a little bit later in verse 7, right? Now, the second thing to quickly highlight here, so that, that's why it's been pulled. The second thing to quickly highlight is another criticism that's often leveled against the Bible and then Christians as well is that, you know what, the Bible's been changed so much over time. It's not the same. Things have been added. Things have been subtracted. Uh, something that really sort of popularized this was Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code a few years ago. 
But here's the thing. As archaeologists and, and, uh, and theolo- theologians and, and people working in these fields find older and older manuscripts and older and older copies of the Bible, we see that this text, the Bible, has been copied and copied and preserved with stunning accuracy over thousands of years. And when we do start to find older manuscripts where things are missing, like verse 4 here, our modern translation teams, they point it out. And they relegate these disputed texts to either footnotes or in brackets or something. The end of Mark uh, is another example of this. And so we know that this wasn't there originally. But here's the thing. None of these disputed texts, like these verses here, verse 3 and 4, they introduce or they do, none of them introduce or contradict any understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, the call to repentance. They do not affect the core teachings and doctrines of the church. Just a little rabbit trail side note there. Back to the text. The first thing about this healing is it was not faked. The second thing is it was not a faith healing. Now, when, when, when you hear those words or when you read those words on the screen, it's not a faith healing. What comes to mind? Maybe nothing, which might be a good thing, but maybe you think of some so-called preacher on TV barking at his people and into a camera saying, you just have to have faith and God wants to heal you. Now, that statement might be true in a sense. We can have faith and, and Jesus' mission was one of restoration, But oftentimes these modern TV uh, or traveling faith healers, they manipulate scripture and they manipulate people into believing that God promises full and complete physical healing right now. If you can just muster up enough faith and you know what, if you send a check in, that might help too. Many of these faith healers over the years have been exposed as frauds. But look at this account. John in no way supports the claim that this was a faith healing. Look especially at verse 6 and 7. Jesus says to the man, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answers him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. How am I going to get healed? I can't get down there. There is no example of faith in Jesus here. The man has his hopes and trusts in the superstition that this pool has healing powers. He doesn't know who Jesus is. We'll see that proven and confirmed in a couple of verses. He doesn't understand who the person asking him is. He doesn't have faith that Jesus might be the Messiah that could do this. Somehow he hasn't heard about Jesus. And so rather than express faith, he complains that no one will help him get better. Don Carson puts it this way. He says, verse 7 reads less as an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than as the crotchety grumblings of an old man and a not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. There's not faith here. In just a few verses, we'll see this man confronted by the Jews for carrying his mat on the Sabbath, and he responds by blaming Jesus. Well, this guy told me to do it. And then he points Jesus out to the leaders a little bit later in verse 13. He does not exhibit faith in Jesus. It's not a fake healing. It's not a a faith healing either. The third thing. It is, though, a free healing. This man didn't deserve the healing he got. Jesus didn't 
owe him anything. It's only because of Jesus' grace that he was healed. One writer says, here's an old, angry, embittered man who's broken and helpless. He's done nothing to deserve the kindness of Jesus. And even when Jesus seeks him out, he responds with an ugly comment, complaining about no help. But what does Jesus do? This is just beautiful. Jesus doesn't say, well, if he'd only asked me. Jesus doesn't say, well, with that kind of response, he deserves to be alone and miserable. And Jesus doesn't say, listen, I gave him a chance and he failed the test. Instead, in Jesus' grace, he looks past the man's failure, the man's sin, and restores him. Jesus makes him whole. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus and the gospel. He can do the same for you. He's done the same for me time and time again. Jesus, Jesus knows all about our past. He can see through the, the hard exterior that we put on to make us look better than we really are. He can see through the mask that we wear so that people can't see what's really inside of us. Jesus has the eyes to see through our hurt and shame and brokenness. We, we saw this just a few verses earlier with the Samaritan woman, didn't we? Jesus can make you whole. Jesus can fulfill the, the longings of our hearts. He can, he can bear the weight of all our hopes and desires and needs and our, our longing for meaning and purpose and identity. And Jesus went to the cross to show you just how far he would go. He went to the cross to, to deal with all those things that are in your heart, that are in my heart, that are ultimately rooted in us rebelling against the authority of God in our lives. Jesus can make you whole. So this isn't a fake healing. It's not a faith healing, but it is a free healing. And finally, it's a full healing. Look again at verse 9. And at once the man was healed. Other translations say immediately he was healed or, or instantly he was healed. This man did not have physio appointments to attend. He didn't have rehab to do. He just got up and walked after 38 years. Jesus' word brought complete restoration. Sometimes I, I, I think that we forget Jesus can do this. Sometimes I think we, we forget about the power of Jesus. We forget about his power over sickness. And that's why we should pray for healing all the time. Now we know as well that Jesus doesn't always heal when we ask. And there could be a thousand reasons why, a thousand reasons that we're not even aware of, reasons that, that we may not see in the moment and we may not actually understand until we're standing face to face with Jesus and say, why didn't you do this? And he says, because I love you and this is why. We see it maybe later. But ultimately, sickness is no match for Jesus. Jesus is Lord over sickness. Our story doesn't end there. The verse we read, the, the verses we read, verse 9, ends with us, uh, this note that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. One commentator uh, helpfully points this out, that this incident reveals that Jesus can change any circumstances for human welfare. And yet his, his purpose in healing the man on the Sabbath is twofold. First, 
to fulfill the meaning of the Sabbath law as to bring freedom to those who are in physical and social bondage. That's why he did it on the Sabbath. It was purposeful that Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. And the second reason, he says, by, by foreknowing the conflict that will arise with the Jewish authorities, Jesus wished to prove his oneness with the Father in work, which we're going to get to in a couple of verses, and also initiate the process of going to the cross. Once again, Jesus has been perfectly deliberate in his actions. He's just shown himself to be Lord over sickness, and he's done so on the Sabbath to show himself as Lord of the Sabbath as well. But also to make a point with the religious leaders of the day that, that they're, uh, they are in their own rebellion, and they're uh, living out of their own lack of submission to God and his authority. So let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But the man who had healed answered them, the man who healed me, the man who said to me, he said, take up your bed and walk. And so they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? The man who had healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now, we don't necessarily know for sure how familiar the man who was healed was to the leaders, but word of his healing no doubt spread, and they come to find him even before he's made it home. He's, we're told, right, he's still carrying his bed. He's still carrying his mat. And what's the first thing they say to him? Not, how are you walking? It's been 38 years. They say, how dare you work on the Sabbath? Which is an interesting response, isn't it? What was most important to them was that their rules were being broken. Not that this man had been healed. Not that after 38 years he was able to stand up and walk. They, they claimed they loved people, but their actions showed something different. Let's keep reading verse 14. Afterwards, so sometime later, Jesus found him, the healed man in the temple, and said, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's amazing. After 38 years, this man has now got home, presumably dropped off his mat, and he's integrating himself back into society. The, the temple was the center of that, and, and, and he goes there uh, to, to be with people, maybe even to worship. And Jesus meets him, and interestingly, interestingly he doesn't make any demands of him. Look at what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, look, look what I've done for you. Now come follow me. You, you owe me, so come. But instead he says, listen, sin no more so that nothing worse will happen. Now again, remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to a man who's just spent 38 years as an outcast, unable to, to move well, paralyzed probably in some way, shape, or form. What could be worse than that? This is also the first time that the word sin is used by John in his gospel. Jesus didn't point out sin in Nicodemus. Jesus didn't point out sin to the Samaritan woman. Jesus didn't point out sin to the royal official who had come. Not in this language anyways. Now, I, I don't think that Jesus is implying that, that there was some particular sin that this man had in his life that caused him to be paralyzed. But instead, Jesus is saying, you are now physically well, 
But there's more than just the physical life. There's a spiritual life as well. And the consequences of not getting that right are even worse than what you've just experienced. How often do you and I pray and pray and pray about something and when it's resolved in one way or the other, maybe we just settle back into our normal life, into our comforts, carry on with our our lives, perhaps even to the neglect of our spiritual lives. The, The thing that had driven us to prayer was gone and so our prayer just starts to lack. Reading and, and studying this passage, I was reminded and, and turned to some of Joni Erickson Tata's writings. If you're not familiar with her, she, uh, right after high school graduation, had a diving accident uh, and has been a quadriplegic in a wheelchair now for more than 50 years. As you can imagine, she says that passages like this, they sting for her. Jesus, he was only 38 years. I'm 50 plus. Let's, let's tell me to get out of my chair and walk, she says. But she writes so beautifully that over the the many, many years, she's come to realize that there is meaning in her suffering. There's meaning in her position. God is is using it in her life. And there's, there's more to life than just physical healing. In one article, she writes this. It's a bit of a longer quote, so I'll read read it for us. She says that. Through all of this, I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things, but they're symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our sin as he grows our love for him. In this passage, she was talking about studying Luke chapter 5. And if you remember in Luke 5, it's a story where, where four friends bring a paralytic, paralytic on a mat to Jesus. And they, they can't get to him, so they actually dig a hole in the roof and, and lower their friend right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven, now get up and walk. Similar to the story, uh, similar to the story we've just looked at in John 5 here, but different. And she notes as she's studying this, that Jesus could just heal the paralyzed man. And he could, only, he could do this only because he had the authority of the Son of God to forgive sin. And that was the point he wanted to make with the Pharisees there. For him, healing withered legs would, make, would take no more effort than setting the stars and in, in moon in motion. For Jesus, all of that's merely finger work. And she points us to Psalm chapter 8. She says, but when it comes to forgiving sin, this was no easy effort on our Savior. Our redemption required blood and a strong arm of salvation. She says, I collapsed in tears when I began to glimpse at how heinous my sin was. Physical healing paled in comparison to the unthinkable abuse my transgressions heaped on my Lord. And so, she says, for the last 50 years in my wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so that I might find myself in Christ. And God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things from which I need to be healed. Does God miraculously heal? Sure he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception not the rule. 
And so a no answer to my request for miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. All to the praise of a deeper healing in Christ. What a fantastic, amazing perspective. Sometimes we, we pray for healing and, and we assume God's just grouchy so he says no, or God doesn't love us enough to say no. But look at what, what she has gained and what I hope and pray for all of us has gained through that no, that, uh, that she has gained this because God has not answered every prayer with yes, because God does know what's best for us. A purged sin, a love for the lost, increasing compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase in faith, happy longing for, love, for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight of prayer, and a hunger for his word. Let me wrap up this morning with these last couple significant verses that do shape the trajectory of the rest of the gospel and ultimately point us towards the cross, shouting, crucify him. Verse 15. After that Jesus had met the man in the temple, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. John's telling us that this wasn't a one-off, that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. This was a regular rhythm for Jesus to do these kinds of things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered their charge. He answered them, My father is working until now, and so I am working. And it gets one step further. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now Jesus could have rightly stepped into a conversation with the Jews here and taught them about the true meaning of Sabbath. He could have said, as he, as he does in uh, Mark chapter 2, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You guys have got this mixed up. He could have shown the Jews here that the Sabbath was designed to be a day of rest from our, our everyday work that it wasn't something that was supposed to be governed by, by dozens of rules of what was work, what wasn't work. Don't look at yourself in the mirror. You pull a hair out because it's gray, it's work. Don't do that. The Sabbath wasn't meant to be more work, remembering all the rules to keep the Sabbath than to just rest and enjoy God. He could have rightly told them that, that acts of mercy like this, healing of a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, these acts fit within the command of Sabbath perfectly. And it's actually what they had done by building all these fences around that command that we read to open our service with was ultimately a perversion of the gift of Sabbath. He could have rightly done all of that but Jesus goes another way. He doesn't defend his working on the Sabbath by saying, this, is, this actually fits with what the Sabbath is supposed to be. Let me help you understand that. But instead he says, well, God, who is my father, is still working on the Sabbath, and so I will keep working too. Now we need to understand a bit of Jesus' logic here. He's not saying that because God is working and holding all things together and caring for everything, that means anyone can work on the Sabbath. 
he's not because we have this command of the Sabbath. We have this command to, to rest and take a break and rest in the Lord and worship and, and spend time with him. But he is saying, because God is working, I can work. Because it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath, it's actually okay for me to work on the Sabbath. And so he's saying to these teachers of the law who knew and understood that God could work on the Sabbath, God didn't just take a break and hope that everything was good after a day of resting, but he, he kept the world spinning, he kept the stars in place, he kept all the things going. Jesus is saying all those things that justify God's work on the Sabbath also apply to him. And so the Jews rightly understand Jesus to be claiming himself to be equal with God. And so the battle lines have now been drawn. The Jews are faced with the decision, the decision we talked about right off the bat. Will they recognize who Jesus is and submit to his authority? Or will they refuse and live for themselves and, and live to their own commands, their own religion? Will they obey Jesus' commands? Or will they just continue to elevate their own man-made rules about the will of the one who has just equated himself with Jesus? Who's more important, us or Jesus? This is a, a foreshadowing of the rest of John's gospel, but it's a question that every one of us needs to wrestle with every single day. Will I submit to Jesus' authority? Or will I trust in my own autonomous self and my own expressive individualism. Matt Carter helpfully concludes these verses for us by saying this, our hearts are a battlefield. Two opposing forces clash violently each day. Our desire for autonomous self-rule engages in a fierce battle with an appropriate desire to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Regardless of who we are and what situation we're in, we must diligently fight to obey Christ, putting to death our desire to be in charge. It's a battle we can win only by the powerful work of Jesus within us. Jesus is Lord over Sabbath and Lord over sickness, and what that means is Jesus can heal and Jesus can give rest. Jesus can heal your broken bone or your broken heart or your broken relationship. If you're tired and weary and don't have the strength to go on, Jesus can give you rest. The Lord of healing and the Lord of rest invites you to come and be refreshed and restored as you follow him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you that you came that you walked this earth in every way like us, you became fully human, that is, as the text says, you, you put on flesh and walked among us. You, John says you, you moved into the neighborhood. Forgive us for the times when we have uh, trusted in our own autonomous, expressive individualism, in our own authority over your authority. We're warned about this even from the beginning of John, that, that those he came to didn't recognize him. Jesus, help us to recognize your work in our life in, in, in the areas that you are trying to, to, to purge from our life. Thank you that uh, you came, you walked, you lived in a perfect relationship with, Jesus, with God, with creation, with others. You showed us the way to be in a right relationship with others. And then for, for our sake, for our sin, for our rebellion, you went to the cross and you took our punishment on you and you died. 
Thank you that three days later, uh, you were raised from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death, so that we are no longer slaves to fear. We are no longer slaves to the things of this world that tell us we need to be this expressive individual, that we can find all we need from within ourselves. You, we have put those lies to death, and we can come to you. I pray that those of us who are tired and weary and don't have the strength to go on would come to you and find our rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve and Deb, would you lead us? Lead us.